0: All right, so my name is Stephen Hackett, and I am joined uh, for this sort of one-off episode uh, of uh, something, I don't know, it's going to be a B-side, I think, to connect it, so if you're listening to this, you know where we put it, Uh, but I'm joined by uh, my friend and yours, John Voorhees. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? I'm doing well, John, Uh, thanks for joining me. You and I were texting the other night as uh, I was wrapping up the book Creative Selection, and I know you wrote a review for this. You had fancy press access before it came out, before the rest of us could read it. But we've both read it, and I thought we could talk about I it did. a little bit. Uh, I don't think it's something that's we're going to squeeze on to, connect it anytime soon. So I uh, wanted to get some thoughts out there. Uh, this uh, this book is is pretty, pretty much brand new. It's been out about a week and... Uh, you want to kind of give us the, the elevator pitch for what this book, uh, what it's about, who wrote it, that sort of thing? Sure. This book was written by
1: Ken Casienda, who used to work at Apple. He was at Apple from 2001 through 2017. And he worked on a lot of high-profile projects while he was there. And this is his book that's really about the Apple... Design process more than anything else, not so much a design as in creating uh, products like Johnny Ives group does, but designing software he really gets into a few different areas, but it's primarily about the design of Safari in the early 2000s and then goes into aspects of the iPhone and a little bit of iPad along the way too
0: yeah so it, that's a really interesting time frame right like if you were going to pick fifteen some odd years to be at Apple. You picked the right ones. Yeah, he sure yeah. did. Yeah he he got there just you know I guess what
1: Steve Jobs had been back at Apple for about yeah. four years when he started at Apple, so that that's
0: right when things started clicking with the iPod and everything. Right. else. so he, that's that is where you root the, the this story starting is is basically uh, the iPod being released. Put yourself in sort of that frame of mind. So Apple has already gone through with the grid of Four. Uh, with the Mac, so the the product line is is much simpler. You're well into the iMac age. The iBook's been around a couple years. You have the PowerBook and the PowerMac. And the iPod is really the first uh, big step out of that grid for Apple hardware wise. But on the software side, things are really interesting in 2001. OS X is brand new. Uh, the public beta was out. The public release was out in the spring of that year. This is very early in Apple's modern software strategy. So early, in fact, that they didn't have their own web browser. You know, we, we think now, of course, the, a web browser and the OS being baked together, right? Microsoft, f- infamously, I would say, did that with Internet Explorer, and it got them into some some trouble. But right. Apple never had one. They relied on Microsoft for Internet Explorer, and there were a few others uh, here and there, but uh, IE for the Mac was by far dominant. It was part of the OS install due to that deal with, with Microsoft at the time. And Apple decides to, uh, to enter into this. And a lot of this story in this part of the book is about the guiding principle behind Safari, and that was speed, that Apple wanted to make the fastest browser uh, on the market, definitely on the Mac, but on the market at large. And i uh, that's sort of where the story hinges, right? The idea of like, how do you design software? One way to do it is to have like a very specific, well-defined goal and work toward
1: it, right? Yeah, exactly. And and what Cassandra does in this book is he he identifies seven different elements that he views as important to design of products at Apple. Uh, those are inspiration, collaboration, craft, diligence, decisiveness, taste, and empathy. And, uh, you know, the, that theme runs throughout the book, and I, it's it's interesting because it's this book to me walks a very strange line between kind of a memoir with anecdotes about what it was like to be at Apple this time and a businessy book that's like here's how to not not so much a how to as in as in checklists and things you can do to recreate what Apple does, but an insight into how that company operates when it's designing a new product and those are two elements that are entwined within the whole book and I think from my perspective I enjoyed the memoir aspect of it far more than more the uh, the you know the elements of of designing products standpoint but but that's maybe just because
0: I like stories about classic apple. Yeah, I I'm Martha right with you man. Yeah, I I get those seven guideposts as an idea uh, for this book, and I, I just say I enjoyed the book. I read it. I blasted through it. It's an easy read. It's it's not very long. It's very well right. written. It's very easy. It's a very easy read. But uh, I, if, if, if I had to criticize it from that perspective, the thing that bugged me a little bit is, um, a lot of times the book would lift from that narrative and talk about like basically going like a four page uh, analogy of like, oh, well, this is like this other thing, and we're going to talk about that other thing for a while. And I understand wanting to like, those seven things are good guideposts about the, the book. I understand that a lot of the stuff is technical. Like how keyboards work when we get to the iPad in a minute and the iPhone, that's hard. Like that's a complicated thing, and I understand that you have to use analogies to explain them. Um, but uh, I did feel like as a as a pretty technical reader, uh, there were pages that I just I kind of skimmed because like I'd, I don't need this this analogy to do all the heavy lifting for me. How did you find that in the book?
1: Yeah, and I felt exactly the same way. And I, it made it hard, I think, in a way for me to review on Mac Stories because this book is clearly, I think, designed to appeal to a broader audience than you and me. I mean, we don't need to be told what open source software is and how that works. But there's like four or five pages early in the book that are simply about that. And that just, you know, I just kind of blew past that. Um, that made it at times feel I, like there was padding in this book. I felt like this book could have been condensed down even more. So I had there are a lot of competing thoughts while well, I enjoyed it a lot too, and felt like this was a really enjoyable and interesting read there were aspects of it that still bothered me: the uh, the analogies, the fact that it felt a little stretched out, which wasn't helped by the fact that there are a lot of, I think, needless illustrations in the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that are a little weird sometimes. I was sending you screenshots of these before I think you got the book, and they're they're pretty funny when you get them out of context. Um, and, and it's kind of like a business book, but not a business business book because as you said, it kind of lifts out of the narrative and says, okay, I just told you this thing and here's how this you know, here's how this is an example of empathy or decisiveness or whatever the element happens to be, which I felt like that was just a little too explicit sometimes mm-hmm. that maybe the book would have done better if it just kind of stuck to the narrative early on and then maybe, because I think it does a much better job at the End of kind of pulling together all those threads at the end and explaining how that they all integrate into these different elements. But there's a little too much explaining along the way, I think.
0: I think that's all, I think it's all fair. I think we're, we see the, see the book the same way. It's almost as if the meat of this book, like, I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean to rag on the guy. Like I said, I I like the book. I think what he's done is really interesting because we don't get these stories from, from former Apple employees. Like, this is the sort of stuff I expected that we would see ten years from now, right? Pete. Right. So, I mean, he left Apple two years ago. No, last year, 2017. Right. Uh we're just not we're just not seeing this stuff yet. And uh and I'm sure it's uh tricky to tell these stories. I'm sure you have to have all your NDAs reviewed and you're probably not gonna make yes. any friends on the inside. But uh so I appreciate that. But it does feel like sort of the the meat of the book is like some pretty long medium posts, maybe. But, um, anyways, yeah, (laughs) Mm. Uh, no, and when you, and when you say too,
1: I mean that, you know, you were surprised that this book is already out. I was too, but it's interesting to note that this book really only covers through about, I'd say, 2010 Mm -hmm. to beginning of 2011 because you know there's a scene in here at the very beginning where um the author is demoing a keyboard to steve jobs for the new ipad and that was in 2009 and there's a reference i think too to multitasking on the ipad at one point but for the most part this is 2001 through roughly 2010 Uh, even though i know from the uh the bio on the the dust jacket of the book that castiendo worked on um Worked on the Apple Watch too, but there's no no real discussion here of the Apple Watch. Probably just too recent.
0: Yeah, yeah, that stuff is still uh, DA'd, Or he was working on stuff that's not even out yet, right? Because Apple has very long right. lead times. So maybe the series for Apple Watch that <laughs> the you know that's new. Uh, maybe that's his last his last project. But um, yeah, the course of his career is interesting, right? So we talked about Safari, and Safari basically the idea was you're going to um. You're going to find some sort of open source browser to base this on. You're going to bring it all to the Mac and we're going to ship it as a product. And he talks about the ins and outs of that, again, with that singular focus of like, this should be fast. So much to the point where once the team was a little bit bigger, if someone couldn't check in code unless it made the browser faster. So if you were like, I don't know, doing something with bookmarks and something you did inadvertently made speed test slower – then you couldn't check that code in. Like a very hard and fast rule from the project managers that this will not slow down. This will only get faster. And I remember when they launched Safari, that was what they led with. You know, they led with, oh, you know, it meets all these modern standards and it's done with like Apple design. And but speed was what Steve Jobs and Phil Schiller used to sell it. And uh, clearly that was a thought, even when it was just a, a sort of a very broken project on someone's Mac in the office somewhere.
1: Right. And that's the kind of story I think that really excels in this book, because, you know, he was working on the front lines. He was actually building the browser. And we haven't seen a lot of stories from people like that. I mean, we've gotten biographies and things from third parties about people like Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive. But this is, you know, the doing part of being at Apple, which to me is in some respects, a lot more interesting, even though, you know, one, one aspect of Safari that would be kind of interesting to learn about and struck me as a parallel is this was, a, you know, we went he went into this project with Internet Explorer being the default browser on the Mac, very much so like... Google Maps was the default maps mm, on yeah. the iPhone early on, right? And there's a similar strategy, it seems to me, of moving to building your own browser because that was going to be a core to the OS on the Mac to what we see happening today and in recent the recent past with Maps and Apple doing its own mapping application. But but that's like at a level that's above what this book is about. This book isn't about those kind of like business strategy um, issues. It's really just about the doing, which appeals in a different way. And I, I found it interesting that that focus on one particular aspect of the browser, what was, is what drove the project to get it from what seemed like an enormous task of of porting 120,000 lines of conquer, conqueror code onto the
0: Mac to having something that actually shipped. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. And he doesn't stray yeah. away from those technical details, like talking about JavaScript and CSS and like all this stuff that sort of goes into uh, into a browser talking about the code base itself which I appreciate I wish there had been more of that but again I think that's like you and I being on the nerdy end of his audience <laughs> right uh, wanting to like really understand it more um, but he he moves some Safari there's a, there's a there's sort of a bridge in the middle of the book where You know, someone else gets promoted to being a manager and he wasn't, and he felt slighted by that. Like, I actually really appreciate his honesty in this part of the book of like, yeah, I thought I deserved this and I didn't get it. And that was hard. Like, I I found that kind of refreshing, honestly, because people can just, like, he could have told this anyway. And unless you were there, you wouldn't know. But it seemed like he was very honest about how he felt in this time period. Uh, But then he got a manager position over Sync Services, which was like this back end project not really user facing uh, not very glamorous and he he realized that he wasn't cut out for it that he really disliked being a manager of any team it didn't have much to do with sync services but like he just wasn't cut out for it and that's a common refrain in stories like this where software engineers get promoted into like managing other software engineers and they are, very different skill sets. You know, my last job before right. Relay, I was a project manager at a design and technology firm, and I had so I had to manage indirectly, but I had to manage designers and developers. You know, kind of work with their schedule and and interface with them. And it's really hard when you don't have those skills. So companies like Apple promote programmers and engineers into managers because they can speak the language quite literally and they can interface with all those people. But uh, I I thought he was really honest and like refreshing about how that was hard for him, and how it really he realized pretty quickly that he had made a mistake uh, in seeking after this job.
1: Yeah, I always find it interesting how that sort of thing is handled within a particular company because, you know, I, I'm sure there are companies out there that that would take the view that, well, if you didn't decide you wanted to move on to manager, that somehow you're a failure and there's not room for you at the company because that's the natural progression of things. And if you, you know, there's not room for someone to be like a lifelong doer, but that doesn't seem to be the case at Apple so much. So it, I agree. That was kind of an interesting section of the book. Mm-hmm.
0: And he gets... um. He gets plucked out of that by uh, what became the the iPhone, right? So Project Purple, um, right. and basically managers are going around and rounding up people, <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and pulling them off the street, as it were, uh, pulling them off you know their other projects and. Um, he says, like, oh, I had to sign a separate NDA just for this. I signed it, and and then the guy said, we're making an iPhone. Like, we're making a phone. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> Right. Um, which is pretty a pretty funny exchange. You know, parts of this story have been told. So, like, we're all aware that uh, Purple, which was the code name, that software team was extremely isolated from the rest of Apple. They basically worked on a hallway. Scott Forstall's office was there because he was overseeing it, and uh, that... So much of that development was done through the use of demos. And that, that's true in the Safari part of the book as well, but especially here, where basically you, the way you worked at Apple at the time, and I think you still do, is you create demos of whatever you're working on. And you show it to other engineers on your level. You show it to your manager if it's good or if it's ready. You get you know demoed up to Phil Schiller or you know Scott Forstall, now Craig Federighi, Steve Jobs, now Tim Cook. Like... These demos sort of bubble up uh, to show what is being worked on, what's possible, and the direction it's headed. And I've never really worked in an environment like that uh, where that's sort of the the currency. The demo is the currency between between people. But it's it's really fascinating to read about, and I can see why it uh, why it works um, the way that it does.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really practical approach because it's not you know you're not just describing some pie-in-the-sky technology and how you might apply it to something, you're actually showing people how it might work. And and there are going to be parts that are broken and parts that are kind of faked early on in the demos, but the demos, at least from reading the books, seem to play probably the most integral role to developing each of these, uh, each of these projects.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, so he's tasked with not working on the browser, even though that's his background, not working on mail, uh but working on the keyboard that was the feature of the iPhone really the thing that set it apart was hey this is um there's no hardware keyboard on this thing you know every, all of these other phones at the time blackberry uh all right. the other phones palm had little plastic keyboards and that was the genius of the iPhone that turned it into the internet communicator not just a phone like because it's all pixels and software you can do whatever you want but no one had really done it well at this point, and you know he's tasked along with some other people in in creating it. And like it, blo- <laughs> it's just one of those things that we all take just complete like we have, we make no notice of the keyboard. In fact, he was talking about like the the keys that the, the graphic that pops up when you type on a key, and I was like, uh-huh. does it still do that? I don't even know if it still does it because like I look at my iPhone keyboard all day, but I don't see it anymore. You know, like it's just right. it's just under my fingers and. That was that was kind of an interesting moment for me. I'm like, Yeah, I don't think about this, but like a bunch of people worked really hard on it.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. It's it's What ended up being the keyboard is so much more than a grid of images of keys that translate in, into letters, right? I mean, it's, it's the combination of uh, autocorrect and the touch targets and growing them and shrinking them depending on what the most likely next key is going to be. It's like four or five different aspects that all were developed in tandem and then integrated into one whole to make the keyboard work.
0: And he he, he walks through, again, the demo process of, like, uh, should it be, like, the QWERTY keyboard that we know in our desktops? And that's that's what it ended up being. But for a long time, their version was sort of like, uh, you know, several keys to a button. And that made the touch targets much bigger, and the software would figure out what you were trying to type. So kind of like T9, but not really, uh, but not what we have now either. And right, right, and, and one of the problems with that is that
1: people, I guess, lost track of what they were typing because they weren 't sure what letters they were on and the word that they were thinking in their head, and I could kind of see it that it would be very hard to do that if you had a long word that you were spelling out, and it was one of those things where, despite all the advanced technology that was going into the iPhone. a QWERTY QWERTY keyboard ended up being one of those things where it's like well if it's not broken don't fix it it's it's something that's familiar to everybody who uses you know a computer or any kind of thing with a keyboard on it Uh, and that it was it grounded the device in people's experience in the real world and that was important to make it make it work
0: yeah it's it's so interesting right that like not only all of that but it has to be Perfect, (laughs) right? Because like, yes. If the keyboard failed, the iPhone didn't work.
1: It'd be like your Newton that you got from uh, Greg Pierce. (laughs) That's right.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and they they talk about the Newton a lot, actually, because like some of those people were still around. They're like, you know, it it that product got a bad rap because of its um its text entry and it's uh something they didn't want they didn't want to repeat. So uh, over time, they sort of hone it. He he works out autocorrect, like, hey, we can actually guess not only because of the letters you type, but with, like, context and words in your – like, words in the dictionary, what you are trying to type. They realize that QWERTY is the way forward, uh, even though the touch targets are much smaller. They do something that the iPhone still does today where – the. The area around a key is actually bigger than just the key itself. So it can kind of work out. You know, if you're typing uh, the word camp, C A M P, by the time you get to P, the touch target for that key is going to be very big because it assumes, it learns that that's what you want to say. Uh, And all that stuff, you know, we take it all for granted today because our iPhones do it, our iPads do it. But uh, it was all brand new when these guys were working on it. And uh, they talk about the pressure, they talk about people leaving. He talks about losing his temper. Again, a pretty honest look at how hard this was on people. You know, that people were just eating pizza and there was like a pile of trash boxes at some point. Like it's, it's rough stuff. Um, but something that, again, I appreciated him sort of showing the reality of it all.
1: Yeah, it it really is a, a practical look at the, the as I said the doing of of the project the the actual crea- act of creation which is to me that that's just fascinating to look at um you know the, you, at the end he gets into the intersection of the humanities and technology which I actually I really liked that section I felt it was a little a, a little better than going through these strict elements because. On some level, the elements to me just felt too broad to really feel unique to Apple. It's like, well, you have to be really good at what you do and you have to work really hard and you have to collaborate with others. And, you know, that's those are, it just seemed to me that those are truisms in a lot of projects and that it, I didn't take a lot away from those, those broad categories. But the, the final chapters of the book, I thought where they really talked about why the demos work. And how they play a role in in building the software, uh, and how they bring kind of the heuristics and the empathy and all that stuff to bear on the actual project uh, that that I really appreciated, especially uh, as the, the book drew to a close.
0: Yeah, I think it was a good place to end it, and I, I kind of wish that the I kind of wish more of the book had been framed that way. Honestly, that right. uh, I think that's broader and more applicable than those seven, uh, those seven sort of guideposts. But you know that that is what it is. Uh, I mean, I'm really splitting hairs at this point because I, it's a book that's uh, even though it's short and even though like I feel like there's more to his career that he didn't talk about, uh, it is a fascinating look at some pretty important things uh, that we you know that modern Apple is built upon. You know, Safari became WebKit that powers everything. Uh, the iPhone, of course, is what the company is now built on. Um, so those things have become, uh, again, just like part of the conversation without us really, you know, noticing them directly. Yeah,
1: I, I know I sound like I'm being pretty hard on the book and part of it is me reading a book and thinking about how I would have edited it as the editor and I think the publisher here is a little to blame of sell, uh, in selling this book as an insider's view of the iPhone when it's, It is, but it also is, you know, it's really concentrated on the keyboard when it comes to the iPhone. This is not like how the, you know, soup to nuts, how the iPhone got built. It's not that at all, and it doesn't really dwell on hardware at all. Uh, But I really enjoyed the book, and I think it did a really good job at what it was trying to do, which was explain how engineers, software engineers, go at solving a real world problem. And and towards the end, one of my favorite demos that he describes is someone who just takes a piece of paper and puts it down on a desk and moves it around with his finger to describe how the interaction with documents on the iPhone or iPad should work. It should be as fluid as flicking things around Mm -hmm. on a table, a piece of paper, which I thought was, you know, and that's really kind of what we have. I I thought it was pretty
0: neat. Yeah, me too. So I I give it a thumbs up. Despite having a few complaints. So it was was a fun read. If you haven't checked it out, there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, It's well worth your time, I think. Yep, I agree. Cool. Uh, John, where can people find you?
1: People can find me over at maxstories.net. And on Twitter, I'm at John Voorhees, J-O-H-N-V-O-O-R-H-W-E-S.
0: Great. Uh, Well, I guess until next time we're on whatever this podcast is, say goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Adios.